0: Alpha One Niner commence Wi Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Whoa, my package is here.
1: Fast,
2: reliable. Able to power tons of devices inside your home at once.
0: All systems go.
3: You are clear
2: for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds varying are not guaranteed.
4: An extraordinary armed rebellion in Russia ends abruptly, but big questions remain. Just how weakened is Vladimir Putin? Is Yevgeny Prigozhin really just going to ride off into the sunset? And perhaps most importantly, what does this all mean for the war in Ukraine? Joining us this hour, former U.S. Ambassador to Russia Michael McFaul, former NATO Supreme Allied Commander James Stavridis, and CIA analyst-turned-Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin. And later, my Sunday exclusive with House Speaker Emerita Nancy Pelosi. I get her reflections on the one-year anniversary of Roe v. Wade being overturned and the future of abortion rights in America. Over just the last 48 hours, Yevgeny Prigozhin, a brutal shadow commander of Russian mercenary forces, staged a short-lived attempt to seize more power in Russia, briefly taking control over Rostov-on-Don, a key military logistics hub, on his, mar- on his way to march toward Moscow. But in the 11th hour, a shady and mysterious deal was struck by Lukashenko, a Putin ally and leader of Belarus that left Putin in power and Pergozin packing his bags to move to Belarus. But we know from history that the story is unlikely to end there. Back in 1991, another Russian leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, also survived a coup, only to relinquish power four months later. Even a short-lived attempt to take over control of the Russian government exposes, at a minimum, some instability and weakness within the Kremlin. Where does this all leave Vladimir Putin's grip on power? Does this change anything for the Ukrainian military on the front lines? Does it embolden Putin to be even more aggressive and brutal in the war? Does it change the calculation of big global powers, like China and India, who have largely hung on the sidelines, or maybe it doesn't at all? And what happens next? This may all feel like something happening very far away, but the reactions of a weakened and emboldened authoritarian leader like Putin can have significant impacts on the rest of the world, which is why we're going to spend most of the next two hours focused on this with some of the smartest people I know. But let me start with how we got here. Over the last decade, Yevgeny Prigozhin built an army of mercenaries around the world. His troops have been tracked in the Central African Republic, Sudan, Libya, Mozambique, Syria, and, yes, Ukraine. That's where you may have heard of him. I first learned about him when I was the State Department spokesperson back in 2014 and Russia invaded Ukraine. Now, back then— President Putin and the Kremlin were denying publicly that they had sent Russian military into Ukraine. That's because they weren't technically Russian military, per their definition. They were members of the Wagner Group, Pergozin's paid mercenaries hired by Putin, the little green men, as many of you may have heard about at the time. Pergozin is a former convict who remade himself into a fat cat Russian oligarch through lucrative food contracts with the Russian military, earning himself the nickname The Chef. His role as shadow military commander started in Ukraine, but he didn't just play in the world of combat. He also ran troll farms that spread disinformation across Eastern Europe and in the United States, including around the 2016 election. In fact, he was even indicted by special counsel Robert Mueller. Prigozhin's trained killers have been fighting the war without being under the command of the Russian military. And there's been long brewing tension going on here, even before Friday. That growing rift emerged as Prigozhin accused the Ministry of Defense of failing to provide necessary equipment and weaponry to fight the war. At one point, he even called for Defense Minister Shoigu and top Russian General Gerasimov to face a firing squad. There's also been dissatisfaction in the Russian military over the war in Ukraine, especially among the rank and file. And Prigozhin capitalized on that unrest, on all of that. So needless to say, his show of force this weekend not only leaves Putin's future in question, but also that of Russia's military leadership. But what is clear is that Prigozhin saw weakness and an opportunity to deceive some form of foul power. His rebellion might now be over, but President Putin's hold on power may never be the same. And that could have far wider implications. I can think of no one better to start off our coverage today than Michael McFall. He's the former US ambassador to Russia and an international affairs analyst for MSNBC. And you have been watching, covering, following Putin for many, many years. So the last 48 hours, I think, feel very strange, including that deal. Let me start with just what do you make of all of this?
0: Well, I have been following him for a long time. We first met Putin in 1991. That's how far back we go. Uh, but he's never experienced uh, 48 hours like he just did. This is the biggest crisis of his time in power since he came, became president in 2000. And there are lots of weird things, like you just described, Jen, about the deal that, that, that caused this to go away, that, that, that everybody backed down. But let's make no mistake, starting at 30,000 feet, when you have one armed force, threatening to go to war with another armed force, and they're both supposed to be loyal to you, that's bad for Vladimir Putin. And he emerges from this crisis much weaker than he was just 48 hours ago.
4: Now, you have uh, been prolific on Twitter about this and informing all of us. And one of the things you said that struck me is, quote, when faced with the difficult decision of trying to stop the Wagner mercenaries with major force, he backed down. How should that impact the way the war is fought in Ukraine? And why did you think that was such an important piece to point out?
0: Well, it's an important uh, point because this has been a debate Uh, within the Biden administration, within the NATO alliance, from the very beginning of this war. uh, At various moments in the war, when making a decision about this weapon or that weapon, uh, there's been a decision made, we can't do that because that will be escalatory. Putin will escalate, including sometimes people even saying he'll use a nuclear weapon. Second, throughout this war, there's been lots of debates about Putin. Uh, needs a safe face. He needs exit ramps. You've heard these metaphors a hundred mm-hmm. times, right? He'll never quit. Um, and yet, here we have a play of that. Um, just and, and Putin was very tough in his address to the, uh, the Russian people, by the way. We're going to squash these traitors. We're going to give them justice. And yet, hours later, he backed away. Mm-hmm. Hours later, when he had the opportunity to escalate, and use his armed forces to bomb them on the road to Moscow, he chose a different path. And I'm not saying that he'll do the same in Ukraine. We need to be careful about whether this is a lesson that will be applied exactly in Ukraine. But the idea that the only thing we can do to end the war in Ukraine is to give him a face saving way out, which usually translates to, by the way, giving him Ukrainian territory. I think this whole episode has really undermined that hypothesis. Maybe Putin will negotiate not when he's winning or not when he's given a gift of territory in Ukraine, but when he's losing, as he just did yesterday.
4: Now, now, given that, obviously there are, a, there's a range of assistance and military equipment that's being provided by different countries around the world, some more ambitious and aggressive than others. There is a NATO meeting coming up in just a couple of weeks. Do you anticipate uh, any of these conversations changing about the kind of assistance, the kind, the kind of military equipment that is going to be provided given Putin's last 48 hours?
0: I don't think so. I think they're locked in for the summit, uh, both in Mm -hmm. terms of what equipment they're going to provide and what they're going to do uh, vis-a-vis Ukraine's aspiration to join the alliance. But I think it already has begun a new conversation about both of those things um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, the threat from the east for Ukraine has become much more volatile, much more Mm -hmm. unstable. Uh, the the worst case scenarios of which I do not personally associate with, I want to be clear about that, but of disillusion of the Putin regime and the Russian Federation. Well, this is a step towards a weaker Russia, which suggests that Ukraine needs more of a security guarantee from the West in order to deal with that neighbor. By the way, I'd be making the same argument if I were talking to Xi Jinping right now. If he's worried about his partner in Russia Quitting the war sooner might be a way to stabilize Mm. Russia and even stabilize Putin in power. I suspect that's going to be part of the conversation in Vilnius uh, when the NATO uh, summit happens.
4: Now, there have been rumors uh, about a change in the Ministry of Defense leadership, but I, I don't expect you to have any particular insight, although share it with us if you do. But I was curious just about how you think the Kremlin, what are the conversations like today inside the Kremlin about what's next and what what the last 48 hours uh, does to impact their own calculus?
0: Well, first, there's lots of Kremlin conversations that we still don't know a lot about. Mm. How is it that our intelligence... Uh, officials knew about there might be a coup attempt in mid-June, uh, but the Russian intelligence didn't. That doesn't make any sense to me. How is it that Prigozhin announced that he was marching towards Rostov, as you just reported, and I remember in real time watching it thinking, there's no way he's going to go to downtown Rostov. And hours later, he was there without firing a shot. Uh, mm. How is it that just in a few hours, Lukashenko, uh, the, he- the 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 leader of Belarus, not known as a mediator, by the way, or a diplomatic uh, uh, negotiator, out of the blue in just hours cuts a deal with Prigozhin. So those are all the the negotiations that the Kremlin did that we still need to learn about. But what I'm looking for going forward is, one, what you just mentioned. Was it really part of the deal, as it's been alleged, that in return for standing down, uh, Prigozhin got Putin to agree To remove the people he hates most of all, Shoigu, Mm -hmm. his minister of defense, and General Garasimov, the the commander that you mentioned. That would be shocking to me uh, Mm. and another sign of of Putin's weakness, but we still don't know. And then, two, what I'm watching is what really are the parameters of Mr. Prigozhin's time in Belarus? Uh, He hasn't been on his Telegram channel since he announced that he was backing up, uh, backing down. That's really interesting to me. He's gone radio silence. Is that part of the deal or not? And we still don't know the details of that.
4: Ambassador Michael McFall, so much to watch, so much over the next couple of days. I know you'll be watching. Thank you so much uh, for joining me this afternoon. We have a huge hour ahead. Uh, Former NATO Supreme Allied Commander James Javridis joins me to discuss what this all means for the battlefield in Ukraine, plus a conversation with the Atlantic's and Applebaum about just how damaging this weekend was for Putin and his grip on power. And later, my uh, my one-on-one interview with House Speaker Emerita Nancy Pelosi. She had a lot on her mind about abortion rights, the Republicans running for president, and so much more. We're just getting started today, and we will be right back. The most serious threats of Vladimir Putin's hold on power since he took control of Russia ended in what felt like an instant, with an agreement brokered by the leader of Belarus with Yevgeny Prigozhin. According to the Kremlin, criminal charges against Pergozin will be dropped, and he will relocate to Belarus. Wagner soldiers who took part in the mutiny will be granted amnesty, and those who remained in their barracks will be offered a contract with the Defense Ministry. We'll see how many take them up on that. So what will it mean for Putin's invasion, now that the leader of his longtime group of paid mercenaries just attempted a rebellion against his military leadership, and maybe even him? Joining me now is Admiral James Stavridis. He is the former NATO Supreme Allied Commander and MSNBC's Chief International Analyst. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. I really just wanted to start here with the impact of what we saw over the last Mm. 48 hours, specifically of the fact that it looks like no longer will there be fighters of the Wagner Group, at least in the size they've been Mm. in, on the battlefield. What do you think the impact of that will be?
3: Well, it's enormous good news for Ukraine, Jen. Um, The most effective Russian ground soldiers from day one in this conflict have been the Wagner group. Mm. Um, They know how to fight. A lot of them come with real combat experience gained in a series of illegal conflicts in Africa. Um, They're tough minded. They typically don't have a lot of ties back home um so to take that piece off the chessboard is nothing but good and and i think your assessment is correct you know we're looking at uh, prigozhin moving to belarus you know first prize conquer russia second prize you get to live in belarus uh, arguably the least desirable place in all of europe to lead and by the way you're going to live under the thumb of alexander lukashenko <laughs> who's a thug and a creature of Vladimir Putin. So point being, he will not be driving the forces of the Wagner group, in my view, in the future. So all that takes a very important ground component out of the game. That's good for Ukraine. One other point to be made here Mm. is the morale issue. Mm -hmm. Um, As does Russian soldiers, many of them conscripts, watch all this, and they've got their phones. They're looking at the internet. They see all this nonsense. It impacts their morale, their willingness to fight, their sense that they're in a just cause, which they're clearly not. So all in all, a good couple of days for Keith, Jen.
4: You have spent, of course, decades commanding forces yourself. Um, How would you take advantage of the last 48 hours if you are Ukrainian military leaders? As you mentioned, it's taking a number of the most skilled fighters off the battlefield. Obviously, they're going to have to figure out where they go from here. But what do you do if you're Zelensky and the Ukrainian military commanders?
3: I'll tell you three things. Number one, you use this moment to really gather intelligence um in all this confusion a lot of the russians will be foolishly jumping on their cell phones there's a lot of exposed communication you gather intelligence number 2 you use your long range strike capability that we have provided the himars hopefully we'll get attackums mm-hmm. in their hands very soon to continue to crack the logistics base uh, particularly with the wagner fighters leaving the battlefield that is open. And then third and finally, information campaign. You are flooding the airwaves. Um, Your machine is making sure every Russian soldier gets to see the loop going over and over again of of Russian tanks charging at Moscow. Um, Think how that's received. So you do all those three things, Jen, and then you continue this powerful counteroffensive. I think you'll see some real military opportunity as a result of all this in the Mm. week or so ahead.
4: There have been a number of rumors about the future of the leadership of the defense ministry of Russia, given that they were the targets of uh, Prigozhin. Do you expect that defense minister Shoigu will remain in his position moving forward, or do you anticipate changes there? I, I, I don't think
3: anybody knows yet, but mm. that's one of the markers I'm watching very closely. I'm also watching uh, Prigozhin himself. You heard Mike McFaul a few moments ago talk about his lack of communication. I think that's consistent with him being sidelined. Um, I would not, to be honest, be surprised to see Schweigou leave. Um, if you think about, and, and you've served in government alongside me, mm. you think about, um, responsibility and accountability when military campaigns fail. Um, we do that in the United States. Our defense secretaries, our service chiefs, our combatant commanders would all have been fired by now mm-hmm. after this real lack of performance. You know that I would not be surprised to see Shwaigu
4: moved aside as well. Admiral James Stavridis, thank you, as always, for sharing some specific and, and a really helpful analysis with us. Uh, my next guest says things are not going back to the way they were in Vladimir Putin's Russia. The Atlantic's Anna Apple bomb joins me after a quick break. For a few hours on Saturday, Yevgeny Prigozhin's advance on Moscow raised the brief but dramatic prospect of regime change in Russia. The Kremlin, of course, is no stranger to revolutionary movements, most notably the events of 1917, which gave rise to the Soviet Union after a bloody and protracted civil war. In fact, in his televised speech during yesterday's short-lived insurrection, Putin seemed to express his fear of exactly that, he specifically warned of a repeat of 1917, portraying it not as the glorious revolution of his beloved former empire, but as a destabilizing force that led, quote, Russians to kill their Russian brothers. For some observers, it was a hot analogy, both because of Putin's well-known affinity for the Soviet Union and because his grip on power at the time was extremely precarious. Of course, a potential civil war was averted and Putin remains in place, at least for now, but as my next guest noted on Twitter, things aren't going back to how they were before. I'm joined now by Ann Applebaum, Russia expert, author, and staff writer at The Atlantic. So, Anne, I just want to start there, because the last 48 hours have been a bit of a whirlwind, uh, and you tweeted, you know, things aren't going to go back. So tell us a little bit more about uh, why you think that and what should we should be watching for over the next couple of weeks.
2: So you're absolutely right to start with 1917, because the person who brought that idea into the conversation yesterday was Putin himself. Um, He gave a short speech in which he portrayed the idea that this was a national emergency, that Yevgeny Prigozhin, who was marching on Moscow, was an enemy of the people. He was a traitor. Mm -hmm. He had to be arrested and crushed. Um, People must not join him. They must stay away from him. Um, And then some hours later, after processes that were opaque and nobody could see after prigozhin had already moved 500 miles into russia had taken over a town had occupied the military headquarters an important military headquarters in southern russia um, after that after all of that suddenly suddenly it was fine and it was all over and prigozhin was being forgiven and he was moving to belarus and there was there was just a disjunction between the morning and the afternoon and a sense mm-hmm. that First of all, things had happened that we weren't being told about. Um, and second of all, that Prigozhin had exposed just how weak Putin's regime was. Mm. Um, nobody stopped him. Nobody was there to get in the way of him. You know, there didn't seem to be anybody bothered by him in Rostov. You know, there were lots of bystanders on the street kind of cheering on the Wagner group and waving at him and taking selfies. Mm. Um, and it, it suddenly looked as if Putin's control wasn't as complete as it as it seemed to be just 48 hours ago
4: we know putin's been paranoid before you've followed, you've covered him you've watched him you've written about him so closely what do you anticipate he's going to be like now
2: well, one of the interesting things about this moment was that he did not, at least so far, he did not blame the West. He didn't say, you know, this mm. is this is a Western plot. This is Hillary Clinton, which he has said in the past, or this is, you know, somebody's organized this. I mean, he, he, he spoke immediately about internal divisions in Russia. Um, and that can only mean that he's aware that these divisions are real and that mm. it's going to be important to try and stop them. Um, I would say he has two paths in front of him right now, either a crackdown um, and we'll see a much higher level of repression in Russia, even than we've seen up until now, maybe control of the Internet, maybe uh, maybe locking more people up or we'll see more chaos uh, as more people look at what just happened and said, wait a second, if Prigozhin can drive tanks you know, into a 200 mile range of Moscow, then a lot of things are possible.
4: Pergosin hadn't exactly made secret his uh, distaste for the Russian military leadership, how they were fighting the war, even fighting the war. Are there others uh, that could be emboldened, potential rivals inside the Kremlin at this point?
2: I mean, you you have to assume there there are dozens of rivals. Um, Somebody (laughs) a few weeks a few few weeks ago, somebody said to me, "What Pergosin is doing now is not exactly trying to replace Putin, but he's already engaged in this competition about." about About who follows him, and you know maybe that was true, and maybe it just went wrong. Um, but really, anybody who sees how potentially weak the regime is, how little resistance there was, how how little reaction there was from the army, from the security services would have
4: to say, right, I, I like my chances. What was so confusing to me watching this yesterday was all of a sudden it was over and Pergozin was moving to Belarus. And as you alluded to, there's just so much we probably don't know. But what did you make about that announced deal? What did you make of that announced deal? And what are the big questions in your mind about what exactly the details of that were?
2: I'm afraid I've just lost. Here. Oh,
4: and can you still hear me? OK, I I, you, 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 I, now I can hear you. Great. I, I, and let me repeat my question. And I was just asking you about because yesterday there were just it, it felt very abrupt. All of a sudden it was there was this deal and Pergozin was moving to Belarus uh, and there's a lot we don't know. What are the big questions you would love answers to?
2: So as soon as that happened, almost everybody I know, everybody who watches Russia, everybody who's in Ukraine, um, everybody who pays attention to this in Washington was flabbergasted. Um, all kinds mm-hmm. of oddities. Uh, you know, Lukashenko as a stand in for Putin when he seemed very weak lately. Um, the, the sudden decision. Um, some people think money was involved. Maybe he was just paid off. You know, maybe that's what he wanted all along. Maybe he'd made his point. Um, Maybe he became afraid that he wouldn't be able to take Moscow after all. Maybe he expected some kind of reinforcements that didn't arrive. Um, There are clearly an enormous number aspects of this story that we don't know. I mean, that, of course, always leads people to the direction of conspiracy theory. And Mm -hmm. I actually don't want to go there because Putin's Putin's reaction on Saturday morning, the speech he gave, the language he used was so forceful that it's clear that he thought something real was happening. So this wasn't a, a piece of theater. It was a it was a, it was a real event. Um, and he clearly thought it was important enough, whatever it costs, whatever whatever the price he paid in, you know, in 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 money or status, it was important for him to bring it to an end. Um, but, yeah, I mean, many unanswered questions is is an understatement.
4: Now, we've been watching this so closely, and obviously MSNBC and other networks here have been covering this so closely. But I'm curious about the read in Russia and the, from the Russian people and what they made of the last 48 hours. So what's your assessment of that?
2: Um, That's hard to know um, because we don't have good information from Russia anymore.
4: Mm. I would say the one interesting clue
2: was the people who you saw on camera. They were being filmed and they were filming themselves uh, in Rostov, which is where uh, Prigozhin occupied the local military headquarters. You know, they were out on the street. They seemed happy to see the Wagner people. They took selfies with them. They were bringing them food. Um, When Prigozhin himself drove away, they cheered and applauded. I mean, this was not a group of people who were upset about seeing the regime replaced by a bunch of mercenary thugs. Um, You know, Putin has spent a lot of time and effort trying to create apathy in Russia. He's persuaded people that politics is a dirty business. You don't want to be involved. Um, He you know, they 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 they, the famous firehood of falsehoods. You know, they put different lies, a huge range of explanations for any given event on television um, in in a completely incoherent way. This is designed to make people feel that nothing is true and they can't know anything and they better stay away. One of the effects of that is that people you know, feel also pretty apathetic about the regime. Um, You Mm -hmm. know, did anybody seem all that sad that, you know, that there was a march on Moscow? Did they seem distressed about it? That wasn't, that certainly wasn't visible yesterday. I mean, obviously, there was a kind of panic in Moscow, people were worried, there were, you know, there were blockades, they were digging trenches, they were, um, you know, they were maybe preparing to defend the city. I'm sure that made people anxious. But were people upset that the leader was in trouble? I don't
4: think so. Anne Applebaum, the first piece I read uh was, was the piece you wrote uh in in your analysis of this. Someone I will always closely follow uh as this story continues. Thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Congressman Alyssa Slotkin, who has an extensive background in national security, joins me after the break to discuss the warnings the U.S. intel community got about the rebellion in Russia. And later, the state of abortion access in this country, one year after Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court. I'll ask House Speaker Emerita Nancy Pelosi if she thinks a national abortion ban is still very much a possibility if Republicans regain control of the Senate and the presidency. We're back after a quick break. Members of Congress have been weighing in on the historic significance of the unsettling events in Russia over the last 48 hours. One perspective that really struck out to me was from from Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin. Before being elected to serve in Congress, she was a CIA analyst, and she held a number of defense and intelligence positions under Presidents Bush and Obama. She also served as the acting assistant secretary of defense for international security affairs, where she oversaw policy on Russia. She's got a lot of experience on these issues. The congresswoman tweeted that she was up most of Friday night watching everything unfold, saying that it is, quote, the clearest public confirmation of the folly of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin of Michigan joins me now. So I wanted to start there. In your tweet on Friday, you called out the folly of Putin's invasion. Do you think he would be facing challenges to his leadership if he had not invaded Ukraine?
5: No. I mean, I think that's the point, right, is that Mm -hmm. a year ago or a year and a half ago, he launched a full-scale invasion of another nation, thinking, number one, that his military had the capability to do it. Number two, that the international community and the United States specifically wouldn't rally, get organized, stay coherent, stay unified, and he could wait us out. And he would have taken back this country in his mind and put him in the annals of Russian history, right, as a great leader, um, mm-hmm. And a year and a half later, he's defending himself. He's defending his leadership. He's having to make statements from bunker locations to his population. He's having other heads of state negotiate deals with the guy who's mm-hmm. threatening violence against him. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't feel like a strong position for him to be in. And so I think it's it's just shows the real Strategic mistake he has made in trying to invade Ukraine. And I, I hope that the Ukrainians are able to take advantage of it on the battlefield.
4: Given your extensive background in national security, I wanted to ask you about these reports, which NBC News has now confirmed that U.S. intelligence officials were aware that Prigozhin was preparing to take this military action against Russia. They even briefed congressional leaders about it last week. They kept it quiet publicly because they were worried, reportedly, that Putin would accuse them of staging a coup, which, of course, we've shown his capabilities in that regard in the past. But what did you make of that decision for them not to provide that information publicly?
5: look, this isn't the United States' fight, right? This is the first time we've had violence um, and conflict on Russian soil between Russians since the coup in 19, or attempted coup in the 90s. So um, this is not, this is not for us to foment, to exaggerate, to try and fan the flames. This is, we're, we're watching. Now we have a huge interest, as does the rest of the world, because Russia is a nuclear superpower, right? They, they have the ability to, you know, if they became unstable, to be a really dangerous concern for the whole international community. But this is a, a fight between Russians, obviously. And it's not like this was done in, in complete darkness. Um, you know, Prigozhin was talking about, his complaints against Putin mm-hmm. and the regime for a while. I mean, he was given pretty a pretty long leash, and so this was, you know, um, something that was being played out in the open, not just behind closed doors.
4: Now, as you and I both know, even though it seems a little bit calm on the ground now, there are a lot of conversations happening in the Situation Room, in the Pentagon, among your former colleagues. What's happening right now? What are they watching? What are you watching uh, over the next couple of days here in Russia and on the ground there? And in Ukraine, too, I should say. Very important.
5: Yeah, I I would say first and foremost, the preeminent concern has to be that this country that has nuclear weapons is still stable. And, um, you know, if you've worked on the, uh, you know, sort of US-Russia relations, there are basically three really important people in that architecture. There's Putin, there's the Minister of Defense, and the Chief of the Defense Staff. And you've had people on your program today talking about, well, what's going to happen to the Minister of Defense or the Chief of Defense Staff? Are they going to be fired? Are they going to be let go? So I thought it was... um, important that people like Chairman Milley canceled his trip, that they're in the Mm -hmm. situation room, they're having this conversation behind closed doors, because that's the the biggest threat um, that we have to be worried about, even if it's a low likelihood that something will happen. Um, And then, um, uh, you know, in my mind, it's making sure that the Ukrainians can potentially Take advantage of some of these weaknesses on the battlefield. What does it mean that the Wagner group is a little um, on its heels right now? What does it mean that they were on the front lines and now maybe their their morale is going to be low? Maybe they're going somewhere else. So I I think um, in my mind, those conversations are first and foremost about the nuclear threat and then Mm -hmm. number two, about how to take advantage of this moment in Ukraine.
4: In light of that, I mean, in terms of how to take advantage of it, which is in, no doubt the conversation that's being had in capitals around the world in Europe and here, do you think that anything should change about the U.S. posture in Ukraine in terms of the type of aid or assistance the U.S. provides? Or do you anticipate that changing those conversations, say, at the NATO meeting that's coming up in a few weeks?
5: Well, look, I mean, I've always been uh, an advocate for doing— um, to the limit of what we can do without sending American sons and daughters into that war, um, because I think it's important um, to punch Putin in the mouth a few more times, change the status quo on the ground so that the Ukrainians have a position of strength and feel comfortable coming to a negotiating table. Right. That's what we're trying to get to. And I think there's a lot of hope that this summer offensive would be that game changer on the ground. So I've been supportive of not just the volume that we've been sending over there, but different types of weapons to help give them an advantage on the battlefield. I was a supporter of uh, sending F-16s or training their pilots because you gotta change the status quo in order to move us to a different point in this war. So um, I hope that, um, I mean, look, what happened in the last 48 hours or 72 hours, is the greatest indicator we have that Putin has made a strategic mistake? Let's press with the Ukrainians now um, and try to put some points on the board to change the status quo and hopefully see our way through this conflict and not just have it be like another decade long frozen conflict.
4: Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Next, my conversation with House Speaker Emerita Nancy Pelosi as we mark one year since Roe v. Wade was overturned. She makes a little news when it comes to her views on the Supreme Court. That's coming up after a quick break. It's now been a year since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. And whether it was the midterms last year or the failed abortion ballot measures in states across the country, one thing has been very clear. Americans are overwhelmingly against that ruling. A new NBC News poll shows that 61% of voters disapprove of the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe. For women between the ages of 18 and 49, nearly 80 percent disapprove. Among independent women, 60 percent disapprove. And even a third of Republican women are against it. It's one of the rare political issues where there is generational agreement. Someone who understands the political and social fallout of the Dobbs ruling better than anyone is House Speaker Emerita Nancy Pelosi. She was first elected to the House uh, when Roe v. Wade had been the law of the land for, for 14 years. So it's safe to say that in her 30-plus years in the House, she didn't imagine she would be rounding out her incredible career in a country where a woman's right to choose was stripped away. I spent some time with her this week to discuss our post Roe reality and much more. So we're sitting here one year after a decision that impacted millions of Americans across the country. And in your briefing just after the Dobbs decision was handed down, you said, quote, be aware of this. The Republicans are plotting a nationwide abortion ban. They cannot be allowed to have a majority in Congress to do that. Now we've seen the response from the American public since then. But how concerned are you if Republicans regain the Senate, the White House, that they would push through an abortion ban?
1: Well, I feel quite certain that they would. I, uh, I have to make sure that they don't win the House uh, and that. I'll work with our leader, Hakeem Jeffries, to make sure that doesn't happen. And I feel that it's definitely within grasp. Everybody said we were going to lose 30, 40 seats mm-hmm. last time. We lost five. Mm-hmm. And everybody said you had the wrong message. They were saying to me, you're going to owe an apology to the members because Dobbs is in the rearview mirror. But it wasn't. It was up front, uh, right up in front mm-hmm. for uh, women in our country. We lost five, not 30 or 40. But uh, we didn't want to lose those five so we'll get them back.
4: Now, there's a lot of language being thrown out there by Republicans running for president about their plans on abortion. Mm. And I think it's so important for people to understand what they're actually saying. So Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law in the dark of night, uh, as we all saw, or we didn't see, uh, a six-week abortion ban. Is that essentially a ban on abortion, given most women don't know that they're pregnant at that point in time? Well, it is.
1: I I don't think we should get involved in dates and all of this. But if you take Total ban, restrictions of that kind, and the rest—many states in our country uh, will have a very unhealthy situation for women. In addition to which, the members here, uh, only a handful of them, voted to enable women to travel mm-hmm. to seek reproductive health care. So it, this is—it's a, it's a disrespect for women. It's a right of privacy. It is a precedent of the court. And what the court did one year ago was something that reversed what has been happening in our country. Since the beginning of our country, our founders founded on freedom and democracy, our founding document. Of course, the declaration was very Mm -hmm. clear in that regard. But the Constitution was not in terms of equality and the rest. But in their wisdom, they made it amendable, starting with the Bill of Rights, African-American men getting the right to vote later than women getting the right to vote. One thing and another. uh, Roe v. Wade. And then Mm -hmm. marriage equality. Mm -hmm. And and then a reversal. The first. Our country has always been about expanding Mm -hmm. freedom until now. This court, ignoring its own precedent and the right of privacy in the Constitution. So we have to reverse that. And Congress has the right to do that Mm -hmm. one way or another. And people have to know what is at stake in the election.
4: Donald Trump is taking credit for the Dobbs decision many times, uh, even recently posting, quote, I was able to kill Roe v. Wade, much to the shock of everyone. Is this something you think Democrats should be hanging around his neck more?
1: Yeah. Because, first of all, it's an hypocrisy of the first order, but that without going into his, shall we say, inconsistencies, to use a gentler word. Yeah, that's what he's saying. And I think that that has clarity. And there are people in our country, and I respect their view on the issue of a woman's right to abortion. But these same people in the Congress, eight of them voted for women having a right to contraception. Mm-hmm. Eight. Mm-hmm. I think it was just a three maybe or so, voted for women to be able to travel to mm-hmm. uh, uh, have access to reproductive health. So make no mistake, there's, there is clarity on their side on this issue. And it is uh, wrong, but it's red meat to their base.
4: I want to talk about the Supreme Court because this week ProPublica is that with a new report about Justice Alito failing to disclose gifts, including a luxury trip with a billionaire donor, with business before the Supreme Court, this is after the reporting we've seen surrounding Justice Thomas and his wife, and you've been quite outspoken about the fact that there's no ethics requirements, yeah. essentially, not a baseline of that. There's also a new Quinnipiac poll that shows public approval of the court has dropped to 30%, which is mm-hmm. shockingly low,
1: yeah. uh, an all-time low. Do you, are you concerned the Supreme Court has lost its legitimacy? Well, I think they have the opportunity to write some ethics rules for themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's what the chief justice has said. We can do it ourselves. I see no action being taken there. But nonetheless, that's what they have said. But I give credit to Senator Whitehouse because with the majority in the Senate, he is able in his committee to point out what needs to be done to have integrity on the court. Integrity on the court, it's shameful how Thomas, as Justice Thomas and Justice Alito, have been so cavalier about their violations of what would be expected of a justice of the Supreme Court. Here we have a body elect- chosen for life, never have to run for office, uh, nominated, confirmed for life with no accountability for their ethics behavior. 30% seems high. Do you think that there should be changes, reforms to
4: the Supreme Court, term limits, uh, an expansion? Yeah.
1: yeah, I don't know that. expansion. mean, it's been over 150 years mm. since we've had an expansion of the court. Mm. It was in the time of Lincoln that it went up to nine. So the subject of whether that should happen is a, a discussion. It's not a, say, a rallying cry, but it's a discussion. Uh, the president formed a commission. They did not recommend expansion of the court. That shouldn't be the end of it. But there certainly should be term limits. There certainly should be term limits. And if nothing else, there should be some ethical rules that would be followed. I had one justice tell me he thought the other justices were people of integrity, like a Clarence Thomas. I'm like, get out of here.
4: hour uh, but some exciting news to end this hour with our show will now be available as a podcast you can search for inside with Gensaki wherever you get your podcasts and hit follow you can check back tomorrow morning to listen to this show in its entirety that does it for this hour but stay right where you are because I'll be back with another full hour as we continue digging into what is happening in Russia we'll also share more of my conversation with Speaker Pelosi it's all coming up right after this quick break